welcome to Yukon 360. It's the only podcast on earth in the history of the human race <laughs> that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is our 39th episode coming to you from the Lakeside Building in beautiful stores, Connecticut. My name's Tom Breen and I'll be your facilitator of sorts today. Joining me as always are my colleagues, Julie Bartuga. You know, I never thought of you as a redhead, but right now your hair's looking real red. Uh, it's not, dear <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Julie is, um, is, well, it's tragic. Something's wrong with her eyesight. <laughs> You're wearing red? Maybe it's... Very, very sorry to hear that. it's reflecting on your... It's the same light we've what, been what recording What would you say? In. You're blonde? Blonde. Dirty blonde. Dirty blonde. Yeah. yeah it's looking a little, little gingery today. Wow. Not in a bad way. I have nothing against redheads. I like redheads. Okay. Well, I'm resigning from the show. This is my last <laughs> podcast. Julie Bartuka. I'm here. here. Hey. And, and, and accurate. Ken Best. I'm here. Hopefully I can speak. (laughs) This is going to be a great show. (laughs) It's already off to a really Um, good start. We have a lot of interesting stories for you. Why don't we start off with some husky headlines, as is our want. Julie, what's going on? Well, UConn has launched the Institute of the Environment to facilitate environmental research and community-wide activities related to sustainability. The organization formalizes the ties between other organizations and departments across the university, allowing for closer collaboration between the academic and operation sides when it comes to their sustainability efforts. The new institute will encompass the Center for Environmental Sciences and Engineering, the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History, the Office of Sustainability and the Natural Resources Conservation Academy and bring together major and degree programs in the area of environmental studies. Organizers say bringing together science, the humanities, and social science will help the university chart a course for a greener future. Very nice. Hmm. It's a good effort. Yes. Ken? A psychology and linguistics professor, Marie Coppola, received a major national award recently in Washington. Professor Coppola was presented with the 2019 Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers for her work in studying the development of sign language and cognitive development in deaf sign language speakers. She's one of only four Connecticut scientists to receive the award, which is the highest honor bestowed by the United States to outstanding scientists and engineers who are beginning their independent research careers. Professor Coppola's work examines how language experiences affect children's cognitive development. She specifically studies children who learn American Sign Language from birth and compares them with those who are exposed to language later in life with their peers who are hearing. Her work directly impacts more than 80,000 deaf or hard of hearing children in public and private schools in the United States. So it's a very big honor. Congratulations to her. Very nice. Uh, As we record this, it's uh, Thursday, the 1st of August. It is the first day of the Tom Cazalea's era. Mm -hmm. He is UConn's 16th president. Started office today, rode his motorcycle to work. I heard he had a cool helmet. I heard, we heard he had a cool helmet. Yeah, we can confirm that. <laughs> we got that from a, a trusted source. Uh, so we're all very excited about that. If you are the kind of person who does things online, like social media, you should follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Prez Tomcat. And that's cat with a K. And P-R-E-Z. P-R-E-Z. Yes. It's very, very hip. It's good uh, content so far. It is good content Enjoying so far. Enjoying it. Also, we'd like to uh, say a particular hello to Elizabeth Omara Otunu. Yes. Who is uh, a colleague who is now enjoying a much-deserved retirement. First day of her retirement. And who said that she's going to be keeping up with UConn News through the podcast. Which she did is say that. Which is a great way to keep up with UConn News mm-hmm. for everyone out there listening. Agreed. All right. So why don't we... Uh, That's a good segue into my piece. It Tom. is a good segue into your piece. News. News. So it's summer on campus. It's a bit quieter than when there are, you know, 
20,000 students walking around here. But there is a lot of activity still going on, and a lot of it is for people who are not yet college students. From orientation, where incoming students get their first taste of campus, and they've got some pre-college summer programs for high school students, there are also a number of summer camps. So Dan Hurley ran a basketball camp this year. We've got engineering camps, and there's even a journalism camp. A couple weeks ago, I had the pleasure of speaking about podcasting at that journalism camp, which is run by the Connecticut Health Investigative Team in partnership with UConn's journalism department. Veteran journalists who all previously worked at the Hartford Current and now run and contribute to the nonprofit investigative news site, which is known as CHIT, run the camp and they bring in expert guests, including print and TV reporters, digital producers, and photojournalists to teach the kids about investigative journalism. This year, 22 students spent their week living in South Campus and learning digital journalism from these experts at Oak Hall. They created their own video packages and stories, practiced interviewing complete strangers, which is a fun thing journalists get to do, and even produced short podcasts the day I was there. This group included five students who traveled here from Ecuador as part of a sister city program with the city of New London. We talked to them about their experience. Twenty-two students diving into journalism this year, the ninth summer the camp has been offered, came for a variety of reasons. Brittany Barton from Waterbury, Connecticut, is entering her senior year of high school. The digital journalism camp was recommended by her English teacher, who is also the editor of her school's paper. And I thought it would be like a really cool new experience, whether it is like working on my writing skills and just learning more about journalism that I didn't really know. And I think I made the right choice because like I didn't really understand this field and like what makes up journalism you know what I mean so I didn't think that I would be as interested but after being here for the last four days I've been really more enlightened on this field so I really like it. Fellow camper Sydney Petter entering her junior year in Orange Connecticut became interested in journalism after taking a broadcast class last year and anchoring sports coverage at her high school. I liked announcing what's happening, what's new, because actually more people watched it than you'd think, and it was really cool to tell people something they didn't know. Southington High School senior Quentin Leahy hopes to pursue a career in videography and says he sees opportunity in the growing visual journalism field. Well, I have a pretty broad understanding for videography, so speaking to all the people who came in and presented to us, it kind of showed me like all the aspects that actually go into videography and then creating a video for this camp has also helped. Quentin and his team put together a video package about downtown stores over the course of the week. We're talking to business owners. We got to interview the mayor of Mansfield yesterday. We're using Adobe Premiere as a video editing software. And um, it's always been a software I've wanted to try, but I've never been able to get my hands on. So that was a great new experience for me. That kind of hands-on experience is what Brittany Barton says she likes best about the camp. It's more of an interactive thing than just sitting down and taking notes. You're actually getting to experience new things in journalism. Five of the students traveled all the way from Ecuador to spend the week at UConn. The editor of the Spanish Voice of Connecticut newspaper is involved with the Norwalk, Connecticut, Riobamba, Ecuador sister city program. She asked if CHIT would consider accepting some of their exchange students for the 2019 camp, and CHIT accepted five out of 70 applicants. Cristina Huisha recently graduated high school in Ecuador. Well, there has been a lot of challenges for us because of the language. 
and because meeting new people is something interesting and you are learning something new that you don't expect to and you are just trying to learn everything you see. A visit from longtime Hartford Current photographer Mark Murko ranked among the campers' favorite sessions. Here's Brittany again. There's so much more than to just take a picture. Like, there's so many things you have to think about, and I feel like I learned a lot in that field, so I like that part. And even if they don't become journalists, Mirko had lessons the students can use in their everyday lives, including the food photographer hobbyists like Sydney. When I order food and I take a picture and show all my friends because I'm like that, I thought that the food should be a certain way, but... The guy said, when you do it, it looks like throw up. (laughs) So I need to change that. Marco's pro tips? Shoot food from a worm's eye view and make sure the photo has visual interest in the foreground, middle ground, and background. Christina from Ecuador said the most important thing she learned, journalism-wise, was to get a source's full name to establish credibility. But the coolest thing she got to do... This thing with the podcast. <laughs> yeah? yeah, because I love podcasts and it's like, oh my God. Glad we could make your dreams come true, Christina. Wow, very interesting. Thanks. Yeah, that camp runs every year. This was the ninth year, so look out for it next year if you have a high school student interested in journalism. We need more people interested in journalism. Yes, we do. We sure do. They can do podcasts. They can write on the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. Ken, what do you have for us this week? If you are one of the many people who attend the Connecticut Repertory Theater Productions and you look into the program and you see information about those productions, do you ever wonder who writes that information? Mm-hmm. And in the credits in the program, there's a listing for the position of dramaturg. Do you know what that person does to receive a credit in the program? Nope. To answer those questions, I spoke with Professor Lindsay Cummings, who is an Associate Professor of Theater Studies in the Department of Dramatic Arts at UConn, who serves as the dramaturg for the Connecticut Repertory Theater. Do people really know what a dramaturg is when they see it in the playbill? I think most people don't. In fact, most of my students don't. I have students sign up for my dramaturgy class, but they send me an email at the same time and ask me what it is they're signing up for. It's probably the least broadly understood aspect of the theater production team. But the quickest way for an audience member to think about what the dramaturg does from their point of view is that the dramaturg is the person who's probably written the program notes that they're reading. And if there's a lobby display outside that's helping provide context for the play, that was possibly put together by the dramaturg. My quick definition, and there's no easy definition of dramaturgy, but my quick definition is that a dramaturg is someone who is attempting to help people have the deepest, richest, most enjoyable experience of the play possible. And that goes for both the production team and for the audience. So dramaturgs do script analysis and research into the world of the play, and they bring that information into the rehearsal room for the actors. They have a dialogue with the director about that material. And then once the play opens, they share that with the audience through website information, through program notes, or through talkbacks and other forms of outreach. I first knew about that when I was writing a story about Uh, one of the CRT productions, and Matt uh, Puglisi suggested that I 
look at the dramaturg's page. And what's very interesting to me is that, as you were saying, there's a lot of history involved with a play, particularly if it's a period play. And, and, I, and I think back to the story that I did about four years ago, I guess, when The Three Musketeers was produced. Mm-hmm. And there were videos of sword fighting. There was a full narrative history of the situation in France in the 1600s that predated the French Revolution. And that was for the actors mm-hmm. and for the, the uh, people directly involved with producing the play. That's a pretty interesting thing to have to research for every play. Every play is its own unique research challenge and opportunity. And that's what I tell my students when they come to me and they say, how am I going to go about this research? And I say, well, first of all, what's the topic? Because every era in history is going to lead you down a different rabbit hole. And research is such a rabbit hole. You can get lost in it. When I work with student dramaturgs, half of what I'm doing is I'm helping them find sources when they have trouble, and then I'm helping them figure out what information is actually going to be the most helpful to the actors and the director and then the audience, because it's easy to sort of find something really fascinating about, you know, 16th century France that you love, but maybe isn't the most relevant thing to the production. So you're also judiciously curating that research for the actors. That's part of what a dramaturg does. Actors also do their own research. Directors do their own research. Designers do their own research. That's important for absolutely everyone on the creative team. Dramaturgs are more exclusively devoted to that, so they have more time to get more in-depth. And they also are thinking about how to winnow that vast world of information down to the most helpful things so that an actor knows, for instance, where they fit in the class structure of that time. So it helps them understand why they make certain behavioral choices that they do in a scene or so that they understand the stakes. Oh, if I'm going to betray this person, what does that mean politically, right? What are the stakes of that so they know how important a moment is in the script? So you're, you're really trying to focus the information so that the actors understand the world they're living in and they understand where their character fits in that world. Who takes the class as a student? Just theatrical folks or is it open to anyone? The class is open to anyone, and I almost always have uh, one non-major in the class, usually a minor, someone who's interested maybe in film production and wants to understand script analysis and research more, sometimes just uh, you know communication students or English students or people who are doing theater minors because they love it and are perhaps a little bit more academically minded as opposed to wanting to be up on stage. They really enjoy the intellectual side of theater, and that class is good for them. And there are prerequisites, I would guess, to get into at least the first-level class. There are. We have a recommended preparation, which is the theater history sequence. That's theater history one and two. And the script analysis class, which is an introductory-level script analysis. And then the seminar, I would guess, is the student being assigned to a, a production, and perhaps, and having to actually do the work. Our student dramaturgs who work on the Connecticut Repertory Theater Productions are doing those as independent studies. Okay. Those are usually theater majors, but not always. The dramaturgy course itself is a mock production dramaturgy experience. So we do a little time talking about the history of the art of dramaturgy. We spend a little bit of time just doing a really in-depth play analysis section And then we do practical dramaturgy. So they're assigned mock productions, and they write program notes and do exactly what you're talking about, sort of execute those those elements of production dramaturgy. What is the biggest challenge for students to do that? Because it's probably something new that they haven't even experienced before. Absolutely. 
For many students, it's, it's actually the research. A lot of students haven't necessarily use the library in depth, and dramaturgy tends to be uh, information that's not easily available on the internet. So I'm teaching students to do a level of research that many of them have not engaged with yet. It's old school. It's old school. There is certainly a lot of good information on, on the internet, but some of these some of these things that, that you're researching, you really actually need books. <laughs> For example? About a year ago, we opened our season with a production of Timberlake Wharton Baker's Our Country's Good, which is a play about the first penal colony in Australia. And the play addresses English society at that time, as well as the conditions in the penal colony and the conditions in the ship on the way over, and then also what it is for this um, Aboriginal worldview to meet this English worldview. Unfortunately, as much information is available on the internet, Aboriginal history and worldviews and theology are not one of the things that's so easy, easy to access. So that was something that the student dramaturg needed to go find scholarly books on. And in part, that's because it's not information that can be easily digested into a web page. You can't write a paragraph on an entire people's worldview and accurately represent it. You actually have to read a book or several books or a lot of books. And that's where dramaturgy can become very challenging because students will sort of dip their toe into this water of a world they've not experienced before and realize that it's actually a giant ocean. And they get overwhelmed. And they're like, how could I possibly understand this world that I didn't even, you know, really think about ever in my life before? So you have to help them figure out how to approach that practically and understand where their limits are going to be because there will be limits. And what was your biggest challenge as a dramaturg? My biggest challenge is always reducing the information to a manageable amount for other people. I think everything is important. <laughs> and I'm one of those people who easily writes, you know, 4,000 words for, for a 500-word limit thing and then has to cut it down. Over the years, I've become a lot better at that. And that's actually quite good at helping my students when they come to me and say, I don't know what here is important. When the equity actors come in, usually from New York or other parts of the country, are they used to having this much information immediately available to them? Or is it kind of new for them because they're actors, they're professionals, they do their own research, as you said earlier, and they may not be used to having this unless they remember their days in college theater. A lot of actors tell us what a joy it is to have someone helping them with that research and providing them with that information. Many regional theaters have dramaturgs on staff and do that, but because it is what we would consider a sort of added function, often not an essential function in some ways. Not everybody has the money for that. So it depends on what their experience is. I have a really great dialogue. Well, as Lindsay said, there's a lot that goes into this activity of being a dramaturg and the research. And the interesting fact is you can't do it all online, all this research. You have to actually go to books, as she said in the piece. Cool. Very nice. I have always wondered what that was, so thank you, Ken. For Tom's History Corner <laughs> this week, uh, I thought we'd uh, just take a quick trip up to North Campus. Okay. To the, the jungle? The, no, no, even farther north. The beautiful Yukon Tech Park. No. In the Innovation Partnership Building. Doesn't feel very historic. Well, so it's a recent addition to this campus, but the plans for a technology park mm. go way back. And that's where we're going today. Can't wait. Let's go. Buckle up. It's the Year of Grace, 1981. There's a vice president for finance named Arthur Gillis at the University of Connecticut. And he is looking for sources of revenue that do not come from 
the government or from tuition. Mm -hmm. And he came from the University of California system where they have lots of technology parks, which are public-private partnerships where an area is set aside, researchers from industry come in, researchers from the university work together hand-in-hand. There's some famous ones around the country like the Research Triangle in Mm -hmm. North Carolina where I lived briefly. Not actually. Well, maybe I did live in the Triangle. I don't know. I lived near certainly the triangle it wasn't square it was triangular it was triangular um and so arthur gillis came to president john DiBiagio with this proposal to make a research park hotel and conference center hmm. and residential apartments DiBiagio liked the idea not so much for the revenue but because he thought actually research would be much more productive if industry researchers and university researchers were in the same space Instead of having to, especially back in these pre-internet days, right, when Makes they had, when it was much more difficult to collaborate. Um, so, UConn chose a 390-acre site on the northern edge of campus and established a nonprofit corporation to oversee the project called the University of Connecticut Educational Properties Inc. or UKEPI, which is there cute. People of a certain vintage in this area still know the term UKEPI, but what they wanted to call the technology park was the Connecticut Technology Park or Contech. Aha. Uh-huh. Sounds very 1980s. It does sound very 1980s. Um, so the project was basically snake bit from the beginning. There were uh, internal protests over the perceived misuse of agricultural land, which delayed the sale of the transfer, I should say, of the parcel, which made it impossible for the outside developer to market it. Where was it specifically? Where the current... It is exactly yes. where it is? Okay. And then once that was done, local groups in Mansfield uh, organized opposition to it uh, before the Mansfield Planning and Zoning Commission. The university sued the developer... Ultimately, the only part of the project that got finished was the Celeron Apartments. Oh, wait. So those, wow. And even that was delayed into the late 1980s by, again, the Mansfield Planning and Zoning Commission and by protests from residents on Hunting Lodge Road who didn't want more traffic. So Celeron Apartments were part of this high-tech future of a, plan? Yes. Yep. That's... I, I always wondered where Celeron came yeah, from. See, it does sound kind of, very, like, Jetsons-y. Yeah. But that's not... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> where I want the the scientists of the world to be living, I guess. Yeah. No offense to people who live in Celeron, just a big party spot when I was a student. During the uh, administration of Susan Herbst, when mm-hmm. this idea came up again, the legislature provided some money for it. All of the development was uh, taking place on land already owned by the university, so it didn't have to go before local planning and zoning, mm. which is one of the ways things were expedited. Uh, so the Innovation Partnership Building has been built. It's beautiful. You it know, is beautiful. For those chance. who aren't familiar, who I haven't been on campus in a while, Discovery Drive is a new road that extends down yes. to Route 44. Which to me is one of the best parts about the development. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on your right is Charter Oak Apartments and Suites, and on your left is Innovation Partnership Building over yep. there. And possibly, coming from campus. Possibly more development to come. So ultimately, UKEPI's future was realized. It just took a lot longer than Go, Arthur Gillis would have thought. We should probably name something after him. Yeah. Something at the tech park. Maybe. A room. A room. A boardroom. <laughs> So that's, uh, that's Tom's History Corner. Fascinating. Yep. So, yeah, next time you're at Celeron partying. I really, that was a good uh, tidbit good of tidbit. information. It's mm-hmm. a bit further west than the current location. Though. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it was a huge, well, it was a huge parcel. It was, what, it was. 400 acres, yep. you said? Yep. So that's it for this week. I do want to say I got some positive feedback from last fortnight's episode from Nick Bellantoni. Oh. I had to connect him with a USA Today reporter who was looking uh, to do a story on some vampire news. Which was in the paper this morning. Yep. Do you? Does your university have a vampire expert? No, probably not, unless you go to the <laughs> University of Connecticut. <laughs> and so uh, I called Nick to make sure he was up for it, and he said he listened to the podcast, and it sounded great, and he had fun doing it. Oh, he didn't even tell me that. Thank you for yeah. relaying the message. <laughs> so if you haven't heard that episode, 
with Nick Bellantoni. Go Check back and listen it to it. And there is now a space on the UConn Today website. Yes. For the UConn 360 podcast. It's kind of a went. best of showcase. Yeah, we have a kind of a highlight reel. Yep. So you go to today.uconn.edu, you can see some of our best stuff. Almost all drawn from like episode 18 onward because <laughs> the sound quality of the first. I think I picked some earlier ones of mine, but. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can follow me at, at main underscore old, where I post old photos and anecdotes from UConn. UConn gone by. There's some old President First Day photos up there right mm. now. So you can compare and contrast. Julie, is there anything you want the good people of listener land to know? Well, if you haven't read UConn Magazine yet, and speaking of the new president, he graces the cover. There's a very good profile on him by Stephanie Reitz. Yep. And lots of other good content in that magazine, as usual, magazine.ucon.edu. I have no pieces in it, but I just think it's great. I am on Twitter at Julie Bartuka and subscribe to this podcast. Ken? I'm all over UConn today, it all seems. All over it. Absolutely. I'm in the magazine this time, too. Yeah. Uh, we took a look, not really back, but looking forward and, and present with Professor Ken Fuchs, who won the Grammy Award mm. this past February, I guess it was, when that took place. Mm -hmm. And other than that, Friday mornings, 8.30 to 10.30, 91.7 WHUS in stores, UConn Sound Alternative, and of course on the UConn 360 podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please join us next week. Or no, God, I'm so bad at this. (laughs) This really is my last show. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're out. I'm out. I'm a total charlatan. (laughs) Everyone should know it.